Welcome to Art of the Score, the podcast that explores, demystifies and celebrates some of the greatest soundtracks of all time from the world of film, TV and video games. I'm Andrew Pogson and in each episode we'll be joined by Daniel Golding and Nicholas Buck as we check out a soundtrack we love, break down its main themes, explore what makes the score tick and hopefully impart our love of the world of soundtracks. In episode 14, we explore the music from the Netflix smash hit Stranger Things, created by the Duffer Brothers and score by Michael Stein and Kyle Dixon. Stranger Things is set firmly in the 1980s and delivers nostalgia hit after nostalgia hit with references to 80s movies, its rock bands and pop culture in general. However, it's through the show's synth-heavy score that it ties the world together and it provides a sense of both days past along with a distinct presence of otherworldly dread. And joining me on our journey to the Upside Down is composer, arranger, orchestrator, conductor and ego tycoon, it's Nicholas Buck. How are you doing, Nick? Yes, that's right. I am the retail demagogue of frozen waffles. <laughs> You've got me there. Um, very looking forward to this episode. Something very different for us. Not only is this uh, a long-form series, but quite a different uh, type of score. So, um, yeah, it'll, it'll be very interesting. Absolutely. And we, um, we've only done one other TV show at this point, being uh, Star Trek. Um, and so this is sort of is our second TV show. I think it's, it's sort of timely because we've just had the release of the second season, which is very exciting. Um, it's probably important to note that we are going to stick with uh, season one predominantly for this. Um, so if you haven't seen season two yet, you haven't been able to catch up yet, then don't worry, we're not going to do any spoilers. We'll do our best. Um, but yeah, season one. Um, and of course, Nick, we do have three. We've got a third in our nerdy BMX writing trio, and it's the writer, critic, university lecturer, and D&D dungeon master to the stars. It's Dan Golding. How are you doing, Dan? I'm doing very well. I'm looking forward to being the chaotic neutral for today in nice. our, in our uh, D&D uh, session. Uh, but yeah, no, I agree. I think this is going to be a really, really interesting episode and quite different from a lot of the stuff that we have talked about before. Absolutely. And guys... I have a very special surprise. Oh? Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. We are joined by a super amazing special guest. She is a musician with super cool bands like Regurgitator and is our resident synth expert because, quite frankly, I didn't uh, have any confidence that we would be cool enough to know (laughs) about synth music. Um, And our resident expert is such an expert that she actually also runs a shop on Etsy selling handmade felt synth replicas. That's amazing. you got to check it out. And um, I'll get Dan to sort of lay a link in the mm. show notes to mm-hmm. sort of go check this stuff out. It's amazing. But for people who have seen season two of Stranger Things, our next guest is our resident Max, Mad Max, topping our high scores, riding her skateboard and bringing a general level of cool to the group. It is my great pleasure to welcome Saya Vogel to the show. How are you doing, Saya? Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing great. 
It's um, it's a real pleasure to have you here because um, we we've we've just had us three guys, and I feel like it's the three guys in Stranger Things. Mm. Um, <laughs> For, for quite some time, but we found a fourth to our posse here and it couldn't have come at a better time because we are doing a very different score, like we spoke about, and uh, I thought it would be really fun to bring in somebody who really understood the nuts and bolts of this sort of synth world, and uh, that's where you come in, Saya. I feel very honoured to be asked, and I do feel a little bit like Max, where I do feel like I'm the outsider and you guys know way more about stuff than me, but hopefully I can prove myself by the end of the episode. Beautiful. I'm, I'm absolutely certain of it, and uh, we've got a whole bunch of little surprises lined up for the rest of the episode, but before we sort of get stuck in, if you haven't subscribed already, please hit subscribe. Leave us a rating on iTunes. Tell your friends. There's an awful lot of people who, who love Stranger Things. And if they'd like to hear more about how this score works and all of its sort of inside out, upside down parts, uh, then absolutely pass it on to your friends. It'd be greatly appreciated. And while we are giving plugs to podcasts, say you run a podcast. Can you tell us about it? I do. I have a podcast called Hearsay, which is, um, I didn't quite think through the name and its spelling. It's H-E-A-R. Uh, S-E-J, because my name is spelled S-E-J-A. Um, it's very silly. <laughs> I have good, to explain that. But there you go. <laughs> um, my podcast is just um, me having conversations to mostly musicians just about their creative process. And at the end of each episode, uh, I ask everyone what their strangest or worst show experience is. And it's always very funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I've, I've, I've checked out many of the episodes. It's really fun. So, if you're listening to this and you want to hear more from Saya, uh, then uh, check out her podcast, Hearsay. And once again, we'll leave a link in the in the show notes to that. Uh, so, let's get stuck in, Dan. Do you want to mm. kick it off with a, a little bit about Stranger Things and, and uh, the composers and, and yeah, so on? Absolutely. So, I mean, so it's, uh, you know, a Netflix uh, show uh, created by Matt and Ross Duffer who yes. are known professionally as the Duffer Brothers. And actually, I have a kind of a question about this. Is, it, is a Duffer kind of a mild insult in Australia only? I don't know. That's an interesting question. Oh, yeah, silly Duffer. <laughs> yeah, because that's what... Com- I, it's, I know it's really unfair of me, but that's what comes to mind. I feel like it's a particularly Australian, Australian experience yeah, right. of, of okay. this show. Um, but basically, they had made a 2015 film, Hidden, where they'd basically made it in a kind of a Shyamalan... Uh, style, you know, uh, sort of thriller mystery sort of thing. Uh, and it hadn't really done that well, but um, they were approached by a, a producer, a TV producer, Donald DeLine, uh, to work on episodes of Wayward Pines alongside a Shyamalan. So they, you know, sort of done really well. Uh, and that was sort of their big their big break into the world of TV. And they came up with this idea of, of Stranger Things, you know, which I don't think it was called that at that point. I think it was um, actually for a long time called Montauk, as in the, you know, the suburb of New, not suburb the the area of New York the city oh really yeah um, okay because Montauk was, I think, one of the, the the places that was used sort of as a double for for Amity Island in Jaws. Oh, and so right. you know, they're, they're sort of tapping into these sorts of films. Anyway, it was rejected from a whole bunch of TV uh, cable networks, uh, and then eventually taken to Netflix, uh, where you know it was picked up and has been you know 
beyond successful for, for them. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you know, in, in terms of how it works, I mean, I think it's really, it's not even, not even barefaced. It's just, it's clear and obvious that how it works is through appealing to nostalgia and kind of reworking ideas from a whole bunch of different things Yeah, from the 1980s, you know, from, from Stephen King. I mean, the font, right? Yeah. The strange thing is that's the font from all of Stephen King's, uh, you know, novels, but also, you know, sort of other horror movies at the time, uh, a lot of things like The Thing, um, yep. things like The Thing, movies like The Thing, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, John Carpenter's film, but also, you know, a lot of nostalgia for, I guess, what we were talking about recently on this podcast with Amblin Entertainment yes, yep. and, the, you know, The Goonies, E.T., um, yeah. Stand By Me as well. Yeah, well, I mean, Stand By Me is, is one that really sticks out because not only is it that Stephen King thing, even though it's not quite the same sort of level as, of dread as a lot mm. of other Stephen King films, but it's that same idea of young boys, mm. essentially, mm-hmm. you know, discovering themselves through a sort of a, a very horrific event. Yep. And there is that sort of level of innocence, but juxtaposed with this overriding, more adult theme yeah. going on and they and they really rev um, Stranger Things up to 11 I mean I, I sort of watched it <laughs> at, up to 11 <laughs> I see what you did there Andrew <laughs> very good da, 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 da. what I love about that is that I went into it going oh yeah this is just going to be sort of the Goonies or it's going to mm. be light and a kid thing but it's almost like they've made it for adults who oh, grew totally. up with that yep. and are now after something slightly darker yeah yeah so. no I totally agree I mean um, uh, Frederick Jamison who's a who's a you know sort of philosopher critical theorist slash movie writer, but really an academic, most famously theorized this idea of postmodernism. He he um, writes this idea of what he calls the nostalgia film, and he's writing in the 1970s. And by that, he means that that sort of glut of films like Star Wars, which aren't explicitly about the past, mm. but they conjure up feelings of the past and nostalgia by replicating the kind of cultural products of the time. Yep. And so, you know, Star Wars isn't about the 1930s but it is about 1930s film serials like yes. Flash Gordon and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and so you know in in a sense I think although Stranger Things goes uh, above and beyond to remind everybody that it's in the 1980s um, it's it's very much a nostalgia film or nostalgia TV series really in that same mode as other recent things like uh, Super 8 as well yep, um, yep. which sort of look at I, I think you know this whole era of, um, of, uh, of filmmaking and do you think that it's this era is more special than other eras of sort of pop culture. Is it just that, that, because it essentially it's my demographic. It's, mm. it's what I grew up with. It's probably all of our demographics. It's what we, you know, it's what we all grew up with. Is it because we now have money and therefore that's what everyone's <laughs> going for? Or perhaps people in our age are now in positions of making films and TV shows. Yeah. I think it's probably both yeah. uh, in a sense. Yeah. And I mean, you see the same, you see the same in, in different eras where, you know, the, the, the 1970s, as I just said, were about sort of the 30s, 40s, 50s. Yep. Um, you know, the, the 1990s were in some respect about the, the 60s and 70s. Sure. And yep. it sort of just keeps cycling through in that yeah, sense. Okay. Um, but, but I mean, I think, I think as well, more than ever, Hollywood and the sort of cultural industries more broadly are looking for surefire successes. And yep. the, surefi- the easiest way to get a surefire success is to look at what people are already interested in. Yeah, for sure. Let's actually talk about the two composers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so Michael Stein. Steen? Stein? Stein. Stein. Stein, is it Stein? Uh, Sayer, do you know if it's Stein? Stein or Steen? I think it's Stein. That's how I say it in, in my mind. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, we have but consensus. L- let's stick with Stein. <laughs> uh, and Kyle Dixon. 
uh, who who both uh, you know previously I think successful musicians. Say, maybe you can um, tell us a little bit about their their background. Yeah, so Michael Stein and Carl Dixon are um, half of a band called Survive, which, like we discussed earlier, is all in capitals with a space between each letter, just to make it extra tricky. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're a four-piece from Austin, Texas, and um, apparently they weren't really playing that many live shows for years. So um, they're an instrumental band. They're very um, analog synth heavy. So they use a lot of stuff from the era of this show. So a lot of stuff is made in the 80s. I suppose it's a lot of... Um, It's quite cinematic, the music. And the special thing about the band is that a lot of the songs um, that they they play live are all produced live. So that means that they're not using any backing tracks, which is pretty impressive for electronic music. Which would be an absolute nightmare to sort of lug in. Absolutely. um, Yeah, you're going to that. Maybe this is why they didn't do many gigs is because you had to bring in a truck. (laughs) Yeah, 300 kilos each. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I've also read um, that apparently quite often if they'd play a show, one of their synths would stop working and then they would need to improvise and, and find workarounds on the fly. Um, so I suppose that, that makes them pretty special that they could actually, you know, improvise on a completely different synthesizer if something breaks down. One of the reasons they can play lots of analog synthesizers is because Michael Stein uh, worked in a synth shop in Austin for a long time. So he's actually really good at fixing his own synthesizers and he would quite often do fixes on the road when they did play. And also, so this, so he worked in this um, synthesizer shop in Austin called Switched On, um, which is quite a big, it has like a really good name in this, in the um, electronic music scene. And I suppose that it became a massive resource for Austin um, to get a lot more electronic bands happening. So I think there's actually like quite a, a big electronic music scene happening in Austin, or it's certainly from, you know, the early 2010s. So yeah, so that's kind of the history of the band. And I think that how they got the gig was that the producers from Stranger Things heard one of their songs was licensed on a soundtrack. And so they asked if they could use the song for a mock trailer when they were pitching the show. So it kind of came out of nowhere for them as far as I know. And of course, that that track was actually uh, the track Dirge. And I thought it might be cool if we just have a listen to that now. Dan, you got something ready to go? Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. So finally, Dan, something I can dance to on this on this podcast, but in super slow motion. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you can definitely hear the um, the Stranger Things vibe with that. So this was mm. a, a track that they used uh, when they were shopping around the um, the show to to different um, studios. What I read was that they hadn't actually shot the show yet, and they oh, just right. had a. It was almost like a. This is the concept, and they just had clips from all 
heaps of like eighties films and stuff, like <laughs> literally quick cut like shots of ET mixed with really, with yeah, oh. yeah. And then they just sort of dumped dumped this track on and, and said, you know, we want to make a show kind of like this. Yeah, right, yeah. okay. And um, that's right. an amazing Obviously picture, said, isn't yeah. it? Just by yeah. just pasting together piles of eighties films, yeah, and then putting <laughs> putting that over the end. Anyway, so that's mm. that's super interesting. So yeah, that's that's what got them the gig. Uh, mm. But say, so, uh, what sort of you know, where's all this coming from? What sort of influences does uh, the guys from Survive, you know, in terms of their, their movies and um, TV shows and so on. Where's that coming from? So, I think the, the band has definitely talked a lot about Tangerine Dream as being one of their biggest influences, both musically and score-wise, I think, as, as far as, like, making a score for a film because they made a, sc- a score for a film called Sorcerer that was, you know, really synth-heavy. And uh, I think, you know, Tangerine Dream have been around since the 70s. Um, so they got a massive back catalogue of all like really beautiful, you know, arpeggiator running bass lines and these like amazing sort of cinematic scores that with filter sweeps and, and great tension creating sort of stuff. I know that they they use a lot of the same gear as Tangerine Dream too, and I'm sure we'll go back we'll go into that later, but there's a lot of like really old stuff that sounds a certain way that you know is really hard to recreate digitally. Um, I think that's the the difference with with this gear is that it's analog, so it's important for listeners to understand that this is some of the earliest electronic instruments, and it's not using digital; it's actually uh, using analog signals. Um, so there is something more uh, warm, I guess you would call it, or more yeah. human even. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's sort of an important difference. And I always thought as a as a younger guy that this would date horribly and in some ways it very much sort of is the su- the sound of the time but at the same time i'm coming way back around to it i mean i love the gorgeous sort of you know warmth of, of these synth instruments and i mean say so for you what's what's been the longevity the longevity of, of these these keyboards i mean i can't imagine that some of the the digital keyboards will be something we'll be talking about in 20 or 30 years yeah i mean you never know but i think that one of the things that i love about about analog synthesizers because I've got a bunch of them at home and they're actually both aesthetically beautiful as well as you know the warm sound like I think things that are made these days they sound really thin and they look a bit crap you know (laughs) what I mean I think that part of the fun of of analog synthesizers and especially when you go back to you know like modular synthesizers um, and the first Moog synthesizers you know, they're all massive and they were so beautiful. They're like works of art within themselves. So, you know, I think that that makes them special. I just don't think anything made these days that's, you know, flat surfaces with slider knobs and a digital screen is uh, can be romanticised like a modular mode can. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And, I mean, I, I know, I, I must admit, uh, relative to yourself, say, an incredibly small amount about analog synthesizers. But um, when I was studying, I learned um, uh, to play keyboard on a Rhodes. And the cool thing about um, Rhodes is that it still has a physical uh, hammer that hits mm. a, um, I guess, a note, a, a piece of metal inside the instrument, but then it gets turned into a digital, well, an analog um, electronic signal. And it was that attack, you know, that, 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 striking of the the note that sort of made them feel like they were more real and i know that digital ones try to recreate that but they never quite get it right yeah it's quite magical when you when you play something old i reckon so let's um 
Let's move on here. And Dan, you've got some, um, I mean, this is sort of a very different score for us. We've been looking at a lot of John Williams, a lot of, you know, sort of orchestral scores, um, Mm. essentially. This one is quite different. Uh, What can you sort of say about how these- Well, I mean, I think think one of the things that's most interesting uh, to think about all through when we're talking, when we will be talking about the music today is the way that it differs in its its effect on the film. So, I mean, I've just got a little clip here of E.T., which is obviously one of the films that is, you know, being, uh, you know, a huge influence here on Stranger Things. And it's the scene where uh, E.T. and uh, Elliot are sort of getting drunk together while Elliot's at school. So, you know, sort of an incidental scene, but listen to how the music so closely follows the action. You're kind of here with the dialogue and maybe I'll, I'll describe a little bit what's happening. But we begin with E.T. Uh, sort of bumbling around at home uh, in the kitchen. Knocked himself out, One thing and we cut back to the school. Elliot's sort of looking woozy. Surly strings, and now we're back with ET bumping into walls, and so etc. 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 And so even in a relatively minor scene, you can hear how the music is sort of taking us between scenes, sort of almost copying ET's footsteps. Yep. it's emphasising every bump. Of ET's head, which is uh, called often called a Mickey Mouse scene. Yeah, absolutely. In the uh, film scoring business, I guess mm. harking back to the original animations yep. of um, matching music to sort of each frame of animation. Whereas, especially with uh, more electronic style music scores, that's rarely the case. And it's certainly not the case really for Stranger Things. So here uh, we have a much more dramatic scene where you'd think using that same logic, the music would closely follow the beats of the scene. We've got, uh, this is the scene where Eleven saves Mike from sort of jumping off the the side of the cliff. And and listen to how the music sort of just creates a mood, uh, an atmosphere below the scene rather than emphasizing every beat. So Eleven's walking into shot. We see the kids' reactions. The sound effects we have of her attacking the attackers. But the music's steady beneath the scene. You better run! She's our friend and she's crazy! You come back here and she'll kill you! You hear me? She'll kill you, you sons of bitches! And now we're cutting back to Eleven as she sort of passes out. So again, like, you know, uh, it's, you know, dramatic scene. And if it was that sort of sort of John Williams mode, I'm sure we'd get, you know, beats for every sort of moment uh, where we get the realization that he's been saved, that, you know, it's Eleven, that she's powerful, that the the, uh, the bullies are scared, they're running off, and then the Eleven passes out. But actually, we don't really get that in the music. Instead, mm. we get sort of a more general mood and vibe, which I think is kind of interesting to think about the different effects that has. Yeah. And I would say that throughout the whole TV show, like the, the biggest difference between yeah something like an ET and this is that every single cue is almost without fail singular in its in its tone and approach. Right. You know, they the, the music kind of comes in, it has a mood, it might build a little bit, and then it's sort of out. There's no there's no kind of sudden mood changes. You know, some sort of turning on a dime to match a bit of action. Mm. It really is uh, sort of singular moods going through the whole thing. And quite often with the with the album, the track itself might go for one or two minutes, mm. but they'll only use the first thirty seconds of it in the. Um, 
in the actual show itself. So, yeah, it does feel like they, the composers no, really have no idea how this was sort of composed, to be perfectly honest. But it certainly feels like they were told about the scene, they were told about the characters, perhaps they saw some of the footage first, mm. and they, they composed they, some stuff. Yeah, they did a lot to script, is, yeah. is what I've read. Yeah, right. You know, yep. Sort of told what will happen and yep. just, you know... Hey guys, throw us some ideas. You know, yeah. is, is the director's kind of you know uh, instruction. And, and we should say that I mean, this is this is a not uncommon mode of composition uh, that we just haven't really talked about so far in mm. this podcast. Like, you know, a lot of the Ennio Morricone classic yep. film scores were composed in exactly this manner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know, you sort of get that uh, through through a lot of films. And you were saying, Dan, that for Morricone, they actually had the soundtrack playing on, on yeah. the set. Mm, that's yeah. right, to sort of set the vibe for, for the actors. Yeah. So um, obviously Morricone had no idea what was going to be happening. Yep. They just played it and yeah. Well, they, mm. they did that <clears throat> for the casting of the character of Eleven in this particular show. Oh, really? Yeah, Miley, Millie Bobby Brown, I think her name yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, <clears> yeah. <throat> they had some of the music that Kyle Dixon and Michael Stein had written and they were playing it as she was doing her screen test. Yeah, right. I heard okay. that too. I, I heard they played a lot of music during auditions because the, the music was really sort of the series, part of the series Genesis. Mm. So they were playing everything during the auditions to see if characters would fit the mood. And I also heard that when the producers contacted them sort of out of the blue, they just went home and they sent the producers 50 pieces that they just had lying around that they'd been working on. <laughs> and just, you know, just to sort of say, this is what we can do. You know, this would be good for this mood. This would be good for that mood. And I think the producers were a little bit concerned that they wouldn't be able to actually create any happy moods because, you know, all of their stuff was so morose. <laughs> um, yeah, sure. But yeah, I think that's really interesting that they they just like bombarded the their inbox with with ideas instantly. Well, I, I think that's an important thing with this score is that I you know I even mentioned it in the intro that it really is the lifeblood of this of this series. Mm. I think it would have been a very different show to be perfectly honest. Still with all the nostalgia beats, you know, visually, mm. but with a different score. If it had that more John Williams score, it's a very yep. different show. And this one, um, I think it actually helps to give that endless feeling of unease and dread mm -hmm. throughout all of it. And I think it's really achieved through this. I, I have my doubts that, a, that an orchestral score could really do the same. Mm. So, let's actually hear some actual Stranger Things music. I know we've been talking about all this other music. Nick, do you want to... Let, let's, let's start at the top. Let's, let's check out the main theme. Let's, let's, let's have a listen to it, absolutely, first. So, the, the main title from Stranger Things... There's a um, there's a lot going on there. Mm. An awful there is. Lot. 
But uh, I think the, the, the really interesting thing off the bat is that if you went along to anyone and said, look, you know, hum me the main thing, theme from Stranger Things, it's not really a, a melodic idea. No. You know, so much of it relies on the actual sound and the production of it to create the mood that even just playing it on a piano, you kind of get the vibe, but um, it, it, it certainly is not the driving force behind thing. And really, it's, it's kind of like two chords alternating. It's an ostinato figure. Um. You know, pretty much motoring underneath like this sort of pulse or undercurrent the whole time. And then just two alternating chords, you know, a C at the bottom or an E. And so we get this kind of mix of harmony between E minor and sort of like a C major seven. Which are so similar. Those two yeah. chords are, are super similar. They share three of, I mean, yeah, it's like they kind of share three or four of the same notes. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, yeah. that's how the ostinato works over the top of both of them, right? Oh, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah they're, they're basically almost just different inversions of, of the same chord. You know, and it's really, yeah, like I said, the, the influence of the synthesizers is is the biggest thing. I mean, in, in those notes, you know, I hear elements of the X-Files. Oh, yeah. Sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. You know, in that sort of, it's like it's a, is it a, an E minor chord or is it a C major chord? Mm. You know, all these different permutations of that one kind of harmony. And I guess it really says it's sort of pulling you both ways. There's a bit of sort of comfortableness, a bit of major, a bit of minor, and a bit of tension. And that's that's kind of the idea of this mystery going on in the show and mm. why it is such a slow burn and a slow, yeah. you know, uh, mm. sense of discovery. Yeah, two chords, two worlds, bleeding between the two. Uh, there yeah, you go. There it. we go. It's one chord that's just sort of turned upside down. Oh! <laughs> Oh, there it is. So, yeah. Turn off the podcast. Yeah. We're done. Um, but, but I think, you know, and this would be a great, a great also time for, for a sayer to, to, I guess, you know, it's really in the orchestration, for want of a better mm. word, of the synthesizers in how actually it keeps interest through these, through these chords. And say, so, I mean, like what's, tell us as a synth expert, what's going on? Well, I guess the first thing is going on, uh, that's going on is like you mentioned that, uh, that arpeggiator. Da, 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 da. I can sing it. Yeah, so the arpeggiator is 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 going up and down, which is something you know. Arpeggiators sometimes don't have to go up and down; they can go up from the root note or down from the top note. And I think those two things can really change the mood of a piece as well, depending on which way the arpeggiator is going. Um, could you explain to me the the arpeggiator? So it's it's doing those da 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 da. But in terms of how you actually play it, are you are you holding down a chord and then it's playing each individual note itself? Yes. So it depends what synthesizer you're using. So um, when I play it on. So I think they they might have used an SH101 for that. I can't quite recall. But if I'm using an SH101, which is an old Roland synth that's made in, in the mid-80s, you can actually – it has a sequencer built in. So you can just play those notes up until the last bit of the new notes. So you go da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That's right. And then you would just press play and it would sequence that over and over and over. 
And so it's a sequence of notes stored into a keyboard. Some keyboards that have polyphony, so that keyboard that I'm using only can play one note at a time, so it's monophonic. Those you would just be able to, to play that chord and it would, it would arpeggiate those notes. Um, so yeah, it really depends what keyboard you're using. So yeah, I think the arpeggiator is cool because, you know, it's it's not just a sequence of notes. It's actually like a like a running mood creator, I think. And you can also change the mood uh, by speeding it up um, or slowing it down. I think in this piece it stays the same the whole time. But I guess the thing that is changing is there's loads of filter sweeps happening over it. So there's a synthesizer that's playing. I think it's almost the same note and it's just modulating the waveform. So it's making the uh, it's making the filter open and close. And when the filter opens, it lets more harmonics through. And so it sounds louder and more full. And when it closes, it can sound qu- quite dim. And I guess the way that that actually ends up coming through is it, it sounds like it's distant and then more present. So that's it, right. it feels like it's, you know, I guess that's why it's called sweeping is that it's sweeping back and forth. Yeah. And before we're sort of trying to uh, talk too much about how these technical things uh, work or at least uh, talking about it, let's actually hear some examples. Um, you've lined up a bunch of the sort of examples that you've played on your own gear at home. Yes. So um, is this a good time to maybe play sure. some of those samples? Yeah. So, so yeah. So the the track starts with the arpeggiated loop, and um, once that starts, um, so I made this on the SH101. Like I said before, it's synth made in the 80s, sounds very warm. And when I was making this, you can you can sort of sweep the filter a little bit, um, just to create a little bit of movement and momentum. In so because it's such a repetitive loop, um, you can do bits and pieces to it to make it a little more interesting. Yep. So I think uh, the bass um, survive talk about the bass being recorded on an SH2, which is um, similar to the SH101, but a little bit older. And SH2 is actually the most famous for doing the bass line on Sweet Dreams by the Eurythmics. Oh, yeah. So it's got that really full, big bass sound. So I don't have an SH2, so I ended up using, um, for my example, I used a Juno 106, um, which also has like a really thick beautiful bass sound which is the poor man's sh2 if you ask me (laughs) um i'll I'll, I'll kick it off here here it comes okay Yeah, that's pretty huge. It's um, it's sort of like the most powerful bass uh, ever. Yeah, I take it back so, that Juno so what makes <laughs> so what makes that sound really big is um something we call pulse width um in the synth world, and I honestly can't scientifically explain pulse width to you because I looked it up today. Actually, I'll read you what what I wrote down. <laughs> you can tell me if this okay. makes sense. While a square wave has equal time between maximum voltage and minimum voltage. A pulse wave is essentially a square wave with an adjustable amount of time in between each cycle before the voltage drops from maximum to minimum. Yeah, no, I got that 100%. That was great. <laughs> I'm all over it now. So I guess if you if you imagine a square wave, which is just if you draw sort of like at the top of a square and then 
So if you're thinking about like a heartbeat monitor, yep. but you're drawing squares instead of points. So I guess pulse width is sort of inverting the, the waves next to each other. And you've lost me again. <laughs> <laughs> well, all, all it equals is that it sounds awesome at the end of the yeah. day. <laughs> yeah. And I think- um, We need so the high school teacher, to, with the science teacher to yeah. explain it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I guess the other thing that they use is um, they use a saw wave, um, which is like a rough growly texture. So um, those two things together make a really thick sounding bass sound. It is huge. Let, let me just kick this off again. Oh yeah. I feel like this is, is this like in Terminator? Sort of like a feel like this at some certain points. It has a bit of like a snarl to it. Yeah. 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 There's, a, there's a hint of danger there as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. And um, what can you tell about the f- filter sweepers um, or filter sweeps? Yes. So basically, um, so th- these happen sort of all, I think this is the main thing um, in the theme that sort of creates suspense and movement. So this is basically what I was saying before is the, that the filters open and close um, and that's creating movement. And because there's so many, so I only just really did the one in my example, but on the original theme song, there's filter sweeps happening all over the shop. Like they're, they're coming in and they're going out. And um, I think that makes for really, like you were saying before, there's a lot going on. And I think it's all those stabs and, and filters opening and closing. Just love how warm it yeah. sounds. Like it's obviously digital. I mean, so dig- I keep on using the word digital. <laughs> it's obviously electronic, but mm. there's something so so warm about how that comes in and out. I love yeah. it. Mm. So um, for that one, I was using. They use um, a a Prophet Five, which is um, really popular synth back in the eighties, um, and pretty much used by everyone you can think of. Um, so I I don't have a Prophet Five, but I've got the um, the synth that's modelled on that. Um, on on those old ones, which is a Prophet Eight. Oh, um, so I made that using the Prophet Eight, and it's the other thing that's really cool about and that that Survive do a lot. I should I keep saying Survive, but it's really just the two half of Survive. Mm. Um, what they do a lot is um, they change the frequency and resonance. So that's kind of that's the thing that makes a synth sound harsh, a bit like a razor. Oh, okay, mm. yep. Um, like a bit raspy and it can take those um, those top ends in and out, um, which I don't know, like when, when you take it out, it kind of makes you feel a bit trepidatious or something. And that's, I think that's a really cool trick as well to like just create some kind of suspense um, or to create some drama. Yeah, certainly the, um, the way that, that everything sort of sweeps in and out and brings in those sort of weird frequencies, I think really helps to... It's, it's all that sort of feeling of dread. That's all I can f- think of the whole time yeah. is that sort of danger every mm. single time. Yeah. Um, and, of course, we've got the, the kick drum, but I guess that's – I always think of it as the heartbeat. Mm. It's yeah. like a um, – you know, when, when I think about the Stranger Things main title, I don't necessarily – I think of the arpeggiator. I think of the little, 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 little. But the only other thing I can think of is the heartbeat and um, – or what I take as the heartbeat. And 
the sort of that brings that horror element. You know, it's someone's heart beating, uh, which so often in, in horror films is used to to sort of give that sense of unease. But, you know, sure, let, let me just kick this off, uh, say, while you, you tell us what's going on here. Sure. So, I actually just found out recently Do you feel under pressure? I do. But it's actually not a fast heartbeat. It's a little bit calming, this one. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, don't you think? It's kind of like not not as... Scary as it That's could true. be. Probably slower than my heart is going currently. Yeah, real you, <laughs> you must live on a treadmill, Sam. <laughs> I don't think my heart either beats that fast unless I'm conducting or something. <laughs> but I, I, it's a really important element. It is important. And, and I just found out that it's actually not because they talk a lot in interviews about using old drum machines like the Lin drum, which, you know, was made famous by Giorgio Moroda. Um, I, I was going to mention him earlier when we were talking about influences because I think... There's a lot of talk about those two um, composers really loving uh, Giorgio Moroder's early synthesizer scores, so especially the ones he did with Harold Faltermeyer because they did Midnight Express together and American Gigolo, and those synth scores are like sort of two of the first sort of pioneering synth scores as well, and it's all made on old vintage stuff. So Giorgio Moroder, you might know from... Uh, you know, he did Donna Summer's I Feel yeah, Love right. and Blondie's Heart of Glass and stuff. So he's a mm. big time producer back in the 70s and 80s. Um, and he's just done a whole bunch of work with Daft Punk now. So he's he's still kicking around. Um, but yeah, they, I think they were really influenced by by Giorgio and and those old sounds like that, you know, that they both use a lot of modular equipment and they use synths percussively so apparently that heartbeat isn't a lindrum like Giorgio would use but it's a a, like a oscillator opening and closing on a I think they said it was a profit five and just opening up that low end so that it feels like it's a low like a kick drum so and then finally we've we've got that that heartbeat but then we also have a uh, sped up uh, little sequence sequence here and um, let's just play it quickly and then you can tell us what it is It sounds like a uh, arpeggiator that just got super excited. It did. It got really excited to be on the podcast. <laughs> it's it's mating, mating season for the mosquitoes, isn't it? <laughs> Flying away in perfect harmony. <laughs> it's an arpeggiator trying to sound sexy. Um, yeah, so it's like it's two, out, two octaves up um, and completely sped up. Um, and then something that um, Michael Stein and Carl Dixon do a lot is they run a lot of their mixes or their tracks through a delay and I think they use quite a lot of analog delay as well so they'd have you know outboard which means out of your computer like you know a special rack unit um, or something they would use that to make sure things are um, you know delay can sometimes create like a whole nother loop within itself so it might sound like there's way more yeah, notes right. than there actually are so that's what they've done with this thing and um, and then they just like shower everything in reverb as well. <laughs> <laughs> reverb makes everything much better. Yeah. Um, and I thought that it would be really uh, cool here is that uh, you've obviously re-recorded all of these and we've just heard the different elements. Uh, I'll just press play on them all together and let's see the result. <laughs> Bo 
so cool it's pretty cool isn't it it yeah, always yeah, sounds yeah. like it's like a remix for like season two or something like <laughs> yeah. that, 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 that could be the stranger things main title in season two or season three <laughs> yeah totally you know it's it's um yeah. and i love that you went in there and you you changed up some of the um the filter sweeps or the filters on those um arpeggiated notes i'm using all the wrong terms i know but no, you're, you're, you're probably twitching great. over there say but um <laughs> But I, I, I think it's yeah, it's almost like a the kookier version of uh, of the Stranger Things title. I love it. That was really fun. Thanks, thanks for letting me do it. It was really fun. Yeah, no, that was absolutely fantastic. That's why we have you here, Saya. Um, now, say just do fifty more versions, and you got the gig. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's the gig? <laughs> it's just playing out the front of our house. Yeah. Um, so that I can go through my day in an eighties, you know, dream. <laughs> Um, so Nick, let's um, let's let's move on uh, to some of the other cues. We spent a bunch of time on the main titles, and let's actually get into some cues into in the actual show itself. Yes, and I mean, look, it's 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 kind of a difficult series to analyze musically because there really aren't that many repeating themes as such. There are a couple. Let's let, let's not be ambushed. There are, there are a couple, and the most obvious early one in the series is a track called "Kids," which really is, I guess, say I was talking earlier about happier music, um, and we don't really associate synths with sort of happy music in, in, in some ways, um, kitsch and sort of eighties and retro year kind of, but happy, mm, not so much. Yet, I guess uh, Dixon and Stein here have really given us a. A comfortable musical place, you know, that is really for us familiar and safe. And there's a little bit of a melodic motif that they put in there. But really, it's just a sort of series of of four chords, which to us says, you know, a a bit of home. So, let's have a listen to a bit of Kids. And you'll really hear this um, simple motif come in about halfway through. So it's four chords. Yep. 
bit like a pop song in some ways. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are four kids. There's You're Lucas. Up. There's Dustin. There's <laughs> Toothless. I love that guy. Yeah, yeah. There's Mike and there's Will. <laughs> Whether they thought about this, who knows? But I mean, really, it, 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 it's probably the most obvious sort of motivic hook to pick up on. This sort of... Uh, sorry. It's so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, it's a little bit of a melodic idea, but it's 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 nice. It's yeah, comfortable. Yeah, it's nice. It just shows them having fun playing their geeky board game that they love. <laughs> well, can you? I've got a question for you guys because it's a this is a new score. It's a new TV show, new score for us. Um, we're not going to be as across it as we are some of the others. Do you know where this theme first comes in, Nick? Ooh. I'm pretty sure it's when they. When we see them playing the board game and they're either arguing or they're being called by mum upstairs. Is it's actually, it? um, so they're playing D&D. Mm. Um, how dare you call it a board game? Sorry. And, um, <laughs> you, you mean Dungeons and Dragons? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can't say D&D. Half the listeners probably have no idea what you're talking about. Dungeons and Dragons, dear listeners. Yes. I'll, I'm looking out for you after you. And like yeah, my yeah. mum listens to this. She has no idea what D&D is. So <laughs> shout out to um, her. <laughs> there is a, there's a point where Will is asked to um, roll a dice and he rolls the dice um, against the Dice. The 20-sided dice. Um, or a D20, Dan, Good. if you're a part of the uh, club. Um, Stop it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave, I will. You've lost me already. Um, I know, you're, you're filling in the cool kid part, say I remember. Um, so he uh, he rolls it off the, the, um, the table and it hits the ground. As soon as it hits the ground, that theme plays. Oh. And I and and it's because I reckon the reason why that happens is because up until that moment, it's probably one of the greatest uh, ways of showing what D and D is actually like. Dungeons and Dragons is actually like. It's you're right in the story. You've got people freaking out. Like nothing's actually happening. Mm. Everything's in their head, and they're you know they're having an amazing time. But it's very much they're in the story. And the second the dice rolls off the table and it hits the ground, all of a sudden they're brought back to real life mm. again. Mm-hmm. And they scamper around the floor. That's when their mum calls and said, "Hey, what, what's happening?" And they all become normal kids again. Mm. And they're not warriors or heroes anymore. They're kids. And that's the moment when this plays. And I think that is very much on purpose. It's like a musical mm. icebreaker to, yeah. to suck us out of that yeah, D- exactly. D&D world. And it's they're, they're, it's a, in a major key. It's it's sort of there's an innocence <laughs> about it, you know. Well, funnily enough, uh, I mean, maybe slight tension, but I, no, I think it works, actually. Um, so I, I don't actually know whether you, we've ever actually talked about this, but I have a, a PhD in video games and game studies. <laughs> um, like I really do. I'm not joking. Um, and He does. Um and when, when when people are talking about the social aspects of, pa- of play, yes. often they talk about it as keying between different modes. Oh, right. So, you're in the game, you're in the world, or you're in the game as a player. Yep. You know, you're playing the rules of the game, yep. or you're in the diegetic world, or then you upkey to the total top, which is just the social scenario, right. which is exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, that yeah, moment yeah. of shifting between different sort of um, 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 modes yeah, okay. of, of, of being in the world, I yeah. suppose. Um, and that, you know, shifting keys in mm. a way is exactly what you're talking about also yeah. musically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I think that works really nicely yeah. and it, it certainly sets them up as innocent kids. Mm. Whereas before that, there's a lot of drama, you know, that, that happens before that with the Demogorgon coming out and them freaking out. 
Nick, there is there any other time that the um, the kids theme actually happens? I yeah, I think it's used. Um, I think in episode four when they're when they they're dressing up Eleven, who's got this sort of um, institutionalized shaved head, and they dress her up in this overtly girly, girly pink yep. sort of fluffy dress, um, almost like dressing up a doll, you know, with this sort of overly blonde, long flowing hair, which wig. I think is a is a direct knockoff of ET. Yeah, isn't that so. when they, they dress ET up? Yeah, dress it is ET too, and yeah. put a wig on. Yeah. yeah. But again, that's a very kid thing to do. Is you know, yeah. let's go play dress ups. Yeah. And so again, this this kids kind of motif comes in, and it's, it's very it's sort of lighthearted. It's a bit of fun, and definitely nothing ominous or upside downish about it. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, the this sort of like comfortable idea of place sort of starts all of the first episode um, for at mm. least the first half of the episode. Well, not even the first half actually. It'll be about up until when Will disappears, which is yeah. probably in the first third. Sure. There's all of this nice happy synth music and you know not long after that scene that Dungeons and Dragons scene we have the uh, boys riding their BMX bikes to school and, and we get this track course we have the revisiting of that arpeggiator which i just mm. learned about <laughs> from you Saya. so it's already working <laughs> the, all the learning um yeah so that's a cool little moment there they're, they're just driving up uh, riding up to to school um and really quickly they we get our theme for nancy and barb now barb is a bit of a fan favorite um, strangely so, because she's only really in the first yeah. two episodes before she goes to the Upside Down. Mm. So, anyway, she gets um, Nancy and Barb get a theme when they first walk down the school hall. And we once again, we get this really happy uh, major key sounding um, uh, synth score. Of course, during this time, Barb is sort of questioning Nancy about, you know, she's she's got a new boyfriend mm. and Steve Harrington. Yeah, yeah, Steve. And, you know, they're it's a bit daydreamy and, and yeah. that's very much plays yeah. out in that, you know, that sort of really high, tinkly. Mm. I was gonna say, know. I can't help feeling that all these cues have an element of sort of uh, light, almost bell-like tones, very plucky, mm. buoyant, and that yeah, really has a kind of like a bounce to it, you yeah. know, which mm. is like it's it's the, it's the sound of youth. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in, in in all its sort of. But guises. more than that as well. I mean, the the synth element and the sort of uh, general uh, reverb that's placed on a lot of these tracks, I think, create creates that sort of dreamlike atmosphere. Yeah, totally. And yeah. I mean, that's the thing that you get throughout all of these, even the original Amblin entertainment films like you know ET and the Goonies, where it's this sort of like shared hallucination of what childhood was like, mm. because it's like. Actually, nobody's childhood was really as is described in these films. Like, no. and, and yeah. But, like, we all know exactly the kind of childhood they're talking about because we've all already experienced it through 
media yeah. through yeah. ET. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you know, it's it's all the elements are there. You know, the the high school lockers, the yep. all the characters, yep. all the kids, the kid with the glasses, the riding of BMXs, the small town, the yeah, sort of yeah, slightly yeah. absent parents that we don't really talk about. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's dreamlike in, in many senses. Yeah, absolutely. And interestingly, it's when, um, when Steve turns up, that theme stops in its tracks. So, they're sort of knocked out of that dreamlike state and then all of a sudden he's in front of them mm. um, and you know it goes to silence again which I think is really interesting it really helps to reiterate the fact that this score is very much playing to moods and vibes rather than it's this character's theme yeah. for one of a better term so now of course there is another well we've we've already mentioned her a few times but there is a very important female character mm. in this um, being Eleven and, of course, she has her own theme. And in actual fact, her theme comes up quite a few times. And having watched season two, I won't spoil anything, but it certainly comes up in that too. So, uh, th- this is not a spoiler. Right in first episode of season two, uh, Mike is thinking about Eleven. And before he even says anything, before anything even happens, the beginning of her theme starts. And I instantly knew at that point that... Eleven's going to be spoken about or something's going to happen and it's actually not that normal in this score you don't Mm. have a score that sort of preempts the score tells you yeah Yeah. who is is about to come on screen so before we talk too much more about Eleven's theme let's uh, play it here interesting how there's there's a similar element to the earlier kids inverted commas kids music mm. you know with that bell like kind of mm. plucky thing but it's there's definitely an element of either otherworldliness or sadness possibly even romance maybe i don't know but definitely sadness i um, think it's sadness and i think it's achieved just by simply the you know the the, the childlike innocence is the rising of the melody bum 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 so we got a nice innocent sort of idea and then minor chord, minor chord, yeah. Two minor so it, chords. It leads up to a minor chord, but it's yeah. So each time it's sort of like hopeful, and then Before, a little pull bit sad. Back, pulls back, yeah. yeah, because it rises, and then that final chord always yeah. drops. It reminds you of that um that song "Morning Morning Has Broken." Oh, yeah. Is it sure. Cat yeah, Stevens yeah, yeah. or something? Or? Yeah. Uh, Morning has no, well, the original. There it is. 
<laughs> I'm sure it has no no relation. I just uh, thought it sounded yeah, like yeah. that. <laughs> but um, interestingly, this this uh, particular tune is in uh, three three beats in a bar, mm. which uh, traditionally mm. used for waltzes and dances and things mm. like that. And I and I think that helps this with its idea of innocence. Mm. I think mm-hmm. it that use of three makes it sort of light. It makes it, you know, feeling like it is sort of floaty, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and then what helps to really break down the time is it's played in time. So, ba-da-da-da. Now, the, the little, um, uh, say you might be able to tell me what this is, the little wobble at the end of the note. What is that? It sounds like it's just a modulation of the waveform. So, it sounds like it's just a little bit of a, they, they just call it modulating the LFO. Is that, li- <laughs> is that like um, synth vibrato sort of thing? Yeah, it's synth vibrato. So, you're basically just turning up the modulation on the low frequency oscillator. Oh, there we go. Oh, LFO. The, the LFO, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, the, um, and the, the tail of it, so the, um, the sustain is, is a bit drawn out. So, it has that kind of a bit of a longer lasting... Um, tail so that I think that makes a little bit more um, it's a bit softer the other thing I noticed was that that song has these really light pads in the background so in in synthesizer world I don't know if if orchestral language is the same but pads and synths are like chords Um, but not necessarily chords like an organ chord but more like a wishy-washy sound um so there were these lovely pads really softly behind that beautiful um, childish melody, uh, the morning is broken melody. Mm. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I think that really makes it, I don't know, just it, it's sort of a calming feeling, those chords really it, softly it gives it a in lot the of background. Space. Yeah, it's spacious. And I think when you, when you see it with the footage, you know, the fact that 11, especially early on doesn't speak much if at all you know a couple of words here and there it, that they're, they're almost like little questions being asked just like Mike is asking her questions and um, you can feel her kind of wanting to answer but being unsure and Definitely. just the fact that the music gives her space really helps 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 that mood so I've got um, two little examples here of, of where this theme is I guess technically speaking developed in a way and uh, one is sort of helps to build on the idea of that childlike element but the other one is what I'm going to propose to you guys of of perhaps how she sort of has this link to the upside down um, but let's hear the first one so this is actually taken straight from the the show and you'll hear 11 goes into the uh, sister of um, of Mike what's her name again Nancy goes into Nancy's um, bedroom and is sort of snooping around I guess and she discovers a music box playing uh, a lullaby and you'll see how they really beautifully um, take Eleven's theme meld it into the uh, music box and then back out again let's have a listen so you got Eleven creaking open the door here and um, making her way through the room.
you sort of hear that that sort of low drone note that yeah. comes in, and and that's the moment when she sort of starts staring at the photos of Nancy and Barb and all her friends, and and I guess her realizing that she never had that that. Uh, childhood and she may never have that childhood and I think that's when that that really beautiful delicate theme starts being underpinned by this sense of sort of dread coming in there and and it's part of a larger story yeah absolutely Um, but later on there is a there's a scene where Eleven gets hidden by Mike as in she's he's told her to to hide in the cupboard because he doesn't want his parents to discover. And, and um, she, she goes- Just like E.T. Just like <laughs> E.T., yeah, exactly. And they, Eleven has a flashback to when she was, I guess, in the facility, some kind of facility. And you'll hear what happens to the way she remembers that memory. And let's just play it first before we talk about it. Fairly dramatic. The, re- the reason why I wanted to sort of play that is that you can hear all of that modulation going on on her actual voice. Mm. And you'll find that whenever the there are connections to the upside down, whenever there are connections even to her memory of the upside down, you get that sort of modulation where it's sort of uh, phasing. Like, or like they're like trying to talk underwater. Or yeah. Mm. And there's, like a, there's a phase to it, you know, like it's coming yeah. out of phase and which, which suits the upside down as well because it being sort of in this sort of right where you are but in a different mm. a different dimension um, and I thought that was once again using a you know an element of the synth score has made its way into the film so mm. treating dialogue with a synth aesthetic which I think is works for Eleven really nicely um, absolutely yeah and you know I think that the way that you know, when she, when you play that theme, that da 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 da, there is that little wah 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 out of mm-hmm. it, and there's that little phasing that happens. Um, like we were talking about the the vibrato, synth vibrato. But in my mind, that shows that little shred of the upside down is still of where in her. of where she's come from. And yeah, is, is hanging onto her. Yeah, exactly. So you've got both the innocence and the upside down mm. thrown in together. Once, so I think it's it's probably. You know, one of the the most successful little cues, mm. and it comes up all the time um, yeah. throughout the show. So, yeah. Now, would it interest you to know that out of all the people who get themes, mm-hmm. there is a thing? It's not a person a that gets a theme, and it's the lazy boy couch. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Now, um, I'm I'm just going to play it for you now, and we'll we'll um, we'll have a quick talk about it. But here it is, lazy boy. Thank you. 
Yeah, so that that uh, Lazy Boy theme happens when uh, Mike first shows Eleven through the house and gets her to sit on a Lazy Boy. And Dan, you were making some um, <laughs> motions at me. Um, I, I what's your reading on this? On oh, this it's theme? Just, just those first three notes sound just like Close Encounters. Oh, right, sure. So the yeah. hand gestures I was making were, you know, Francois Truffaut's hand gestures that signify those notes. In yeah, the, yeah, yeah. In the film, you know, the da, da, da. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, oh, yeah, I just hear a, it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, this is like this is comedy music, and it almost sounds like a really deep steel drum. Mm. And I, I hear like a bit of like it's almost like a bit of a Caribbean groove. Dum, yeah, yeah, dum, yeah. Dum, 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 it certainly gets dum, a groove going after yeah. a, a minute or two. I, I imagine like Sebastian to come along and start singing at the top with his little flipper <laughs> from the Little Mermaid. <laughs> but maybe that's just my wild imagination. <laughs> I find it takes a while to get into a groove. I think it's sort of it's really out of time for the whole song, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And then it sort of slowly um, merges. It, it, it builds up all these different elements and they're slightly out of phase. And heavy and then delay they slowly again. sort of shift into a, yeah, shift into a sort of a groove um, base, which I, I think is cool. I mean, look, my, my reading on it is that it's actually, it's a little bit frumpy. You know, if I think about the dad sitting in the lazy boy chair, <laughs> it's like, bomb, bomb, bomb. <laughs> bomb, 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 and and for people who are listening to this on the headphones, um, I'm not confident you'll hear this if you're not listening on headphones. But you'll hear this really delicate, almost like a record playing at the end of the record. You know when it gets that sort of like hiss, and it's like a little hiss track or like static, mm. and there's static playing in the background, just very delicately. Mm. And you'll find that throughout this score, there's actually little elements of these sort of static things happening and I wonder whether that's sort of the idea of Will being in the Upside Down and because he's always accessed through radios and things that have static in them. Um, He's always present in some way crackling along in the background. Absolutely. Mm. And, you know, I think it would be easy. Initially, when I, f- I first heard this um, theme, I thought, well, okay, fine. There's, you know, they have this funny thing where they put 11 in a Lazy Boy and, and this theme plays. And I thought, well, fine, they've called it Lazy Boy. But it actually comes back later on. And when 11 is, is left in the house by herself, I guess uh, Mike is at, at school and, and the parents have gone to work. It actually happens again when she goes into the same room and she starts looking around the house, that theme starts up again. So therefore, I started thinking, well, is this the lazy boy theme or is this like a suburban house theme? You know, this is yeah, like- Yeah, that's what I reckon. Because mm, she's like watching mm, TV and yeah. switching through channels of Reagan. There's cartoons, there's yep. yeah, television yeah. commercials. And so this is sort of the representation of here's a standard middle-class suburban house. Yeah. And I think that, you know, probably which is is- nothing more suburban middle class than a lazy boy yeah (laughs) and maybe that's why this this works so nicely so i thought we would check out well one of the 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 main reasons for this whole show really which is the idea of the upside down and of course there is a quite a large amount of music actually that exists specifically for the upside down but let's listen to the well the cue called the Upside Down. It goes for quite a while, but we'll listen to just the beginning here because I think this is the part that's used most often.
So it's that sort of chord, and I guess with the, the, the sweep sort of moving, modulating in and out, that signifies anything to do with the upside down. Certainly for the upside down when it's talked about from the real world, and that's mm-hmm. an important difference because there is music that happens within the upside down. So this, this whole thing sort of first appears when... Uh, is it Eleven looks at a photo of the boys and there's Will. And she recognises Will. Yeah. yeah. And the second she sees Will, that chord plays. Right. Every time. And uh, same with anyone else. When anyone else is investigating the Upside Down, it's mentioned that wow mm. sort of happens underneath. And sometimes it's quite subliminal. Subliminal. <laughs> can't say that word. And, you know, other times it's sort of quite present. And the way it always is presented to me is because of the way those um, that sweep is working is it sounds like it's not quite with you. Yeah. It sounds like it's distant. So even when it's up in the mix, when it's loud, it's still distant. Once again, you know, it's the idea of that that other world. Yeah, sonically it's not it's not mm. right in your face. No. Mm. And it's always constantly changing as if like just when you think you can kind of grab it, reach out and grab that sound. Yeah. It just disappears. It morphs into something else. Yeah. And again, like like what I was saying earlier, it's 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 a singular idea. Mm. And there are there are some other tracks uh, in this album where it all, is almost like like one chord that just like morphs and changes in its sort of texture and sweepiness and mm. say we'll have the right terms here. Um, <laughs> but it's just yeah, and it's at the how I find it so fascinating that just one chord can evoke so much. Um, well, I mean, also with the sus- single sustain chord, it almost becomes like mist or something, right? Yeah, it's like yeah, yeah it's just like mm. it's another world. It's not like worlds. It's just mm. a world. It's that chord. It's that mm. sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, that's all. It's little bits and be- bits and pieces. I was reading the other day that um, the producers or the duffers asked the the two composers not to make it the score too synthy. And what they they thought that they meant by that was, you know, synthy to a lot of people means like that sort of really harsh laser sound. And when I think about that, that's exactly mm. what this sound is. It's, it sounds like a laser, you know, it's like really high frequency yeah. that doesn't sound Zip. very, yeah, it just sounds like it's whooshing past you a bit. And it's interesting that that's the sound that they landed on for, you know, the scary part of the show. The the thing that it's all about is the maybe the part that they didn't want in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Now, of course, as the this particular track goes on, we actually get a theme for the Demogorgon. And it's once again, it's the theme that, that happens in the real world. And let's just have a listen to it. So it's, you know, with that phasing we were talking about, it becomes very present 
Mm. So all of that other is sweeping in and out. But as soon as that boom, 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 etc. comes in, it's right up in the mix. It's mm. it's forward. And because when they first talk about the Demogorgon, and this is when um, Eleven is once again on the Dungeons and Dragons board and she pulls out the figurine and puts it down in the middle. That's when that theme plays. And it's because all of a sudden that danger is really present. Yeah, And it's um, been identified. Yeah, absolutely. As, as this. And, mm-hmm. and they're using all these synth sounds to sort mm. of get animal noises, like mm. this. Yeah, it's almost of, you like know, stuff howling. Over the top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so and, creepy. And say, that, say that main little melody there, is that, is that detuned or something yeah. with that synth, do you think? Yeah, uh, or it could be a really, yeah, it's a detuned or really slow modulation, like a really low modulation, which can then just sound like, a, like it's out of tune. But I, mm. yeah, it's so creepy. I was just listening to it in the studio the other night when I was preparing for this podcast and I couldn't even get all the way through. It re- it's so eerie and <laughs> you kept creepy. kept checking behind you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so creepy. And it, it's so amazing that they were able to achieve that with such a minimal score. Mm. Absolutely. Now, of course, when they, they head into the Upside Down, and it happens quite a few times, but there is a different soundscape when they're actually in there. And uh, let's have a listen to it. This is the track Walking Through the Upside Down. So it's a little more, um, uh, it's certainly more present. Mm. It's not seeming like another world that's hard to grasp. Mm. But there is, uh, for me, I find this less spooky than the cube before. Mm. There is something about this which sounds a little more like ghosts and ghouls and, you know. Yeah, um, and there's a sort of investigative investigative element to it. Yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, that baseline provides an ostinato, which I guess gives us something to hold on to. Yeah. Yeah, there's a bit of forward momentum. Yeah. Yeah. around the next corner. Yeah, they're creeping around through there, which, yeah, maybe that's what Stranger Things, the musical. We got Little Mermaid earlier with Sebastian and his little detuned steel drums and- I'm, I'm going to do it, people. Coming to Broadway 2019. <laughs> Strangest Things, a musical. You heard it here first. Morning has broken. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Move uh, over, Mamma Mia. Yeah. <laughs> now, I thought I would play the, you know, I guess the final piece of music that, that we'll check out for this, this episode of things that are upside down and eerie. Now, this is happening in the, uh, the woods when uh, Will's brother, what's Will's brother? Jonathan name? Myers. Jonathan Myers, <laughs> not Mike Myers. The creepoid. <laughs> where he is taking photographs around the place where they suspect, um, or at least initially they suspect that Will was abducted. And uh, we get all sorts of sort of similar vibes to that sort of upside downness.
tell you what's great there. It's what I noticed is that it sounds like a mix between Jonathan's like on the cusp of discovering the animal, like yep. almost like little snarls, like yep, you know, of like the, the whatever the creature is around the corner. But also, you know, those films where like they're detecting radiation, yeah, and there's like a yeah, like a Geiger counter, like a Geiger mm. counter, and mm. it's like it's never there or not there it sort of comes in waves yeah oh we're getting closer mm. like a metal detector yeah yeah it really kind of feels like that but don't you think it also once again going with that idea of, of the radios sort of coming in and out that it's yeah. it's coming into reception and out yeah. of reception yeah yeah, yeah. or a yeah. radio steady absolutely yeah mm. so I mean I even think about it as the the way that that Will communicates with his mum through the lights yeah. That that oh, idea sure. of the the electricity coming through the lights and sort yeah. of buzzing in and out mm. is that vibe even though they're not in an area where there are any lights. Mm. But there's obviously some kind of electricity, some kind of, you know, signal that's yeah, coming in like and out. Like a power surge or a hum. It's never always yeah. just there or not there. It's sort of... Yeah. It's very um, unregular. Yeah. So, uh, of course, we have the, I guess, the the main, I guess, bad guys, yeah. for want of a better term, in this show. And, and that's, of course, the... Do, do we ever find out what their actual titles are? Is that season mm-hmm. two? Let's, let's keep it to season one. <laughs> you know, they're sort of the government guys. Yep. Um, mm. There's obviously military. It's a military base of some description. Mm. It certainly has a lot of a lot of security. There's there's once again piles of cues wherever the you know the the guy you know the military or or government people turn up. I thought I'd just play one track here to give you an idea of it. It's called Hazmat Suits, and it's when the uh, government has sort of discovered that that this thing they're investigating has has got outside of the compound and they go over to Will's house to sort of investigate what's going on. They all turn up in their hazmat suits. But this shares elements with piles of the other cues that, once again, depict these people. So really the the main difference here is that it's all low end mostly yeah. you know mm. and everything is 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 sliding down you know um, and I don't think to the upside down portamento port, portamento there we go um, <laughs> thank you sir and uh, you know meaning that it's sort of sliding between notes and um, you know moving from high note down to a lower note you know I don't think that this is the upside down I think this is just bad people you know mm. who have bad things bad intentions mm. and it just sort of you know has those blast of big sort of ominous bass notes and then everything's sort of sliding into it and you know it always feels like they're sucking everyone into their sort of scheme or their mm. their experiment or, or whatever you want to call it but yeah there's piles of examples of that and even even in fact the 11 when I had that screaming you know where she mm. gets um, she's been dragged down a hall 
and she gets chucked in a cell. And as soon as she goes in that cell, there's a big boom, <laughs> you know, and that, that low base that kicks in is always those government guys. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that's that's worth mentioning with this is that when I, when I think of that kind of ominous low synth, one of the earliest examples I think of is uh, actually the opening, Wendy Carlos's opening um, uh, to The Shining actually, mm, uh, yep. which, you know, from 1980. God, it's a creepy film. Ooh. Yeah, it's yeah, so, <laughs> a creep just thinking yeah. about it now. <laughs> uh, and, you know, Wendy Carlos was, you know, an amazing pioneer of, of synth soundtracks, you know, to Tron as well. But, I mean, yeah, I'll just play a little bit. Just I don't think, you know, there's any particular homage going on here, but it's just worth, uh, worth uh, I don't know, I think it's a nice, nice little link. And, and people who've listened to our previous episodes will recognize a familiar melody. What's that melody, Andrew? Uh, it's the DSE Ray. Mm. Um, played quite in full, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, so many other composers, when they refer to it, they only really use those first four notes. But, you know, Wendy actually puts in pretty much the whole first <laughs> opening phrase yeah. in there. Is that, um, is that played on an organ? Uh, no, I think I think it's a, a maybe. Okay, it feels like a low kind of organ. Yeah, uh, and it just reminded me of um, a similar thing at the beginning of ET when the government oh sure dudes are crawling around. Well, it, look, Williams uses that an actual organ there. I I wonder whether it's actually worth comparing it to the theme just to show how different this approach dealing with very similar material, the sort of nebulous, frightening government agents that are scaring kids who have uh, <laughs> you know a, a person they want to capture. Mm. I mean, that's the plot line of both ET and stranger things and just to show that the entirely different musical approach to compare what we've heard for the the villains with the sort of like i think it's called keys theme from from et which is just so dramatically different And it's just, yeah, I mean, it's musical material to accompany pretty much the same dramatic, even aesthetic tension. Mm. Uh, and it just, you know, it couldn't be from two different, two more different musical universes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, still that idea of the low sounds. Sure. I mean, I guess that's one of the most universal sort of basics that the bad guy has the low sound, <laughs> you know, and the good guy yeah. has the higher sound. But, yeah. you know, in, in this Stranger Things score, they really take it to the extreme by using those synths to get notes that aren't possible on normal or real or acoustic or whatever you want to call it, instruments. So basically what we're waiting for is the real creative genius. I want someone to come along with a bad guy theme on like the piccolo. <laughs> and if they can make that work, they will have changed the face yeah. of film music forever. Yeah. Uh, okay. So um, another element of this score is really how it defines or how it portrays people's mental state. And uh, because as, you know, Will's mum is sort of getting more and more frantic and in many ways actually ends up being one of the more sane people, like she's the one who sort of figures it out early. But, you know, she's certainly getting more and more um, uh, descending into a madness, I guess. But 
a lot of the characters in this town are sort of broken. You know, the mm. sheriff is, you know, has a past which they sort of allude to a lot um, with his daughter and and the fact that he used to be a big city cop and now he's in the country town and, you know, why is that? And, you know, all these people seem to sort of have backstories that aren't 100% happy. Mm. And I thought we'd just listen to uh, one of the first times that we hear, we, we transition from that really lovely music that we looked at the start of the episode where we transition out of that and start, start getting a little more, you know, panicky. It's a track called This Isn't You and it's when Will's mum is in the kitchen and she's saying, have you seen Will? Have you seen Will? And uh, this particular piece plays. see there at the end there's it's very lovely theme you know mm, i like that a lot but then as it gets to that chord change it starts you start hearing these little repeating sections mm. of the theme and to me that's the voices starting in you know will's mum's what's i keep saying will's mum what's her name again joyce joyce in joyce's head you know that it's it's mentally the first cracks starting you know she's panicking um a million ideas are running around her mind and you're hearing that from a musical point of view and that's actually what happens in the scene is is as she starts to realize wait a minute we don't know where he is you get that that sort of repeating sort of uh, sequence part there which i think is you know we were talking about the fact that these tracks don't necessarily follow the action yeah and here, you know, is an example of where it sort of does. Mm. In actual fact, there is another one, even even better example of this, where uh, the sheriff has uh, spoken um, to Joyce and his daughter comes up. The fact that he had a, he lost a daughter and um, he goes out to the car. He's determined to go find Will. He's on the case. And just before he gets out there, he's obviously having some kind of anxiety attack or, or something. And he downs a couple of pills out of prescription bottle. Let's see if you can hear it in this particular cue, that moment when he actually swallows the pills.
Yeah, so it, it mm. goes from sort of a very determined, you know, I'm on the case, to all of a sudden you hear those those breaths, I guess, yeah. those synthesized but, but breaths. Almost like the hallucinogens. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's happening as he's panicking. I mean, he's, he's sort of drawing breath on screen. And then as he swallows, you get the... Mm. You know, you know, and then restores again. Mm. And yeah, it's sort of like a musical panic attack. <laughs> so do you think that these tracks were then written in response to the image in these scenes? Or do you think that's just been lined up by the editor or the music editor? It's I, I honestly don't know. I mean, given how they, you know, we we seem to have worked out that they've written a lot of this, mm. it's almost too perfect for it to be Oh, there's a there's the perfect track. I can just you know cue this in mm. and make it line up to the the thing. I, I do mm. wonder whether they got to that point and they're like, actually, no, we can do something slightly different here. Um, it's just too too perfect. Well, yep, uh, yep. <laughs> However, there is something that's uh, I mean I don't know. There's something that's quite interesting in 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 sort of uh, I guess theory of well not just film music but film sound generally called synchresis. Um, which this this um, French theorist um, Michel Chion talks about how basically we are willing to link sound and vision even if no link exists, and we sort of our brains go above and beyond to make that link, which is why uh, Dark Side of the Moon works with The Wizard of Oz. If you you know if you play it from start to finish, it accompanies it perfectly. Yeah, right. Or you know, uh, I'm sure you know if anybody's listening to this and they've ever done any editing of um, a video before if you put a track underneath it sometimes it'll just happen where you'll be like oh wow and look you know when the music changes that it changes to this different spot in the, mm. in the image as how well. good was my edit yeah yeah exactly <laughs> when really it was just it was just coincidence yeah yeah and so it's just a, an amazing phenomena that our brains are capable of I mean, haven't you just described this podcast? Well, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Our secret's out, wow. people. Well, yeah. no, I think, the, I think the secret is that, well, not the secret, the, the, the concept is that so many, so much music can probably work against so much yeah. footage. Mm. And what makes it, what makes one bit of music with a bit of footage better than another bit of music with yeah. a bit of footage? And I, I could argue, you know, that, that at the end of the day, well, it's just a choice that, that is made by either the composer or the director or, or whoever else. Mm. And there could be films that we hold up really highly that may be equally as successful if we had gone back in time and put completely different music to them. They, they still may be the great films. And mm. we're just like, wasn't that score great? I mean, look mm. at look at the, what's that classic film, Metropolis. How many yeah. how many goddamn times has that been rescored by people? Mm. And it works but in it, so many different ways. I mean, and it has an original score as well. It, it does. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Now, there are a bunch of other times in the score where, where there are moods or, or mental states, uh, but we don't, I don't think we have time to go through them. But if you're playing along at home, there's things like the hanging lights, where Will's mum is, is sort of frantically putting up lights and, and she's all in her head. There's no other sound except for the, um, the, the score playing at this time. And you'll get sort of a, a different mental state there. And then also later on, the um, track called Hallucinations, which you really get some sort of mind-melding, mind-altering, you know, ideas once again through those scenes. So, check them out at home um, if you've got the soundtrack or on Spotify or however else you listen to. I've got to, to say, um, Winona Ryder is just a mess through this entire series. <laughs> yeah. I can't think of another <laughs> film or TV series where someone is just on the verge of a melt, panic attack, anxiety meltdown. But isn't it yeah. amazing like performance this. though? Like, I think I haven't, yeah. I haven't seen her in a film for a very long time or a show mm. and she hits it out of the park. I mean, because it's not mm. easy to look that frantic all the time. Mm. And she manages to actually shift between different sort of manic moods. Um, mm. She's. It's not a one note. It's not like I'm just panicked and no. upset, you know, like she 
manages yeah. to sort of shift it all the way through. It's a real masterful performance. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, she's you know she's had a I think a real renaissance in, in recent years. Like she's in um, she's in Black Swan. She's in Star yep. Trek. Yeah, yeah, she's for sure. Really interesting. I was going to say the last thing I remember her in was Edward Scissorhands. But <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, there's there's one part of this score that we haven't really touched on yet, and that's mm. all of the licensed music. And this, uh, I guess, provides a, a way of still bringing that 80s nostalgia hit to the show, but it's almost diegetic, or at least a lot of it is diegetic music, music that exists within the world. And I guess it's juxtaposed with the that synth score, because the synth is almost always, as we've been discussing, you know, feeling and mood and, you know, foreboding and so on. And whereas the real world soundtrack just really knocks you out of that dreamlike state every time. However, before we get too much into the... Uh, we've got a few more examples with the, the pop music, but before we get to that, there is a, uh, a sort of a reoccurring idea that comes up in the first season, and that's uh, when Nancy and Steve uh, kiss. Now, when they first kiss... Do you guys know when they first kiss? No. Looking very silent. Yeah. Saya, do you know when they first kiss? Hmm... No. Bathroom? No. I don't it know. It is the bathroom, yeah. Is so it? it's yeah. it's in the um the first episode and they're you know, they're finished in the locker rooms. Steve says, Meet me in the bathroom That's and right. they have a big snog in the bathroom. Now, importantly, there's no music when that happens. It's just pure a couple of um, you know, horny teenagers and that happens and there's no music. Now the second time that they kiss is when Nancy and Barb go over to Steve's house and they end up sleeping together. Now, once again, the music that plays is not the score. It's not the synth music. It's a pop tune that happens over the top. And I don't know whether that's supposedly playing on the radio while that's going on. I'm not Mm. sure. They don't really explain it. But it definitely feels like this is a real world thing. You know, Mm. this is a, a thing that's happening. And it's, once again, two teenagers doing doing that whole thing. However, the third time they kiss which is the following day. Um, Nancy's had a little bit of a a freak out. Her mum accosts her in the house and says, what's wrong? What's changed? What's wrong with you? And she says, nothing, nothing, nothing. And she goes to school the next day. And and at this point, as a a viewer, at least for me, you know, I, I sort of think Steve's the villain. He's one of the villains in this show, and he's a bit of an asshole and, and oh, not a very likable character. However, I think this moment is when he starts to redeem himself because by the end of season one, he actually becomes one of the heroes, you know, mm. and a really likable guy. And I think this is the moment where it shifts, and it's when he sees her at the lockers again, and she's sort of really awkward. She's like, how do I act now that we've, you know, we've slept together? And, and then he just is really casual and calm and loving and kisses her romantically for the first time. And we actually get this first time synth score comes in. Don't you think that sort of feels like, um, one, it's got that innocence. It's mm. got those sort of like tingly notes again for the, you know, um, first time in a little while. And 
but it's everything's rising, everything's going upwards. Mm. And I sort of feel like that's their, you know, the temperature. The temperature is rising, you know, the the <laughs> um the, the blood pressure, the you know, things are sort of going up and there's that bump 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 and feels like a heartbeat again. There it is. The less romantic version by Nick Bug. <laughs> and um there it is. <laughs> no, you reharmonize that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think this is the one of those first sort of you know romantic, actual romantic moments, mm. and I think from there Steve starts. Be, you know, he's, he starts out still as a bit of the doofus, but he's no longer that hard-edged, you know, jock. Until he finally sort of, you know, shifts all the way around mm. by the end of the season where he becomes a bit of a hero and a guy you're sort of rooting for at the end. So, I thought it was an interesting way of going silence, mm. pop music, and then score. Mm. And the score is the is the emotional side again. And that's a very little, you know, very melodic little piece of music as well. Like, I can easily imagine an entirely different version that actually has a sung melody using that. Yeah. yeah, totally. It does feel like it's a um, instrumental version mm. of a pop song. Totally. Yeah. Now, the probably the single most important pop song in this whole yeah. season is um, a piece by The Clash called Should I Stay or Should I Go? Now, it is used to create a link between Will and his brother. And it's very early on in the season when there's a flashback to Will and his brother listening to the the clash in their bedroom. They're bonding. He's like in- introducing his younger brother to like cool music. Yeah, exactly. When you're a teenager, you can listen to cool music like this. <laughs> you know, it's, a bit, it's a bit rebellious at the same time. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I even think there's a really sweet... Uh, this is what I love so much about this show. There's there's a really sweet moment, not where is the older brother's showing the younger brother something, is that the older brother is is saying to him, it's all right to dig music. Mm. You know, he starts sort of moving around and, and bopping his head and and without any kind of level of um, awkwardness or, or being self-aware. And Will looks at him, who's sort of all awkward by the idea, and then goes, no, I can, I can feel music. And I think that that's so beautifully summed up in mm. that moment that it's all right to like something. It's all right to, to lose yourself in a moment. And, and to show your feelings. Yeah. You know, and music yeah, yeah. is a way to, to do that. Exactly. So, that becomes like the, the emotional sort of um, pop linchpin throughout this, this whole season. And just to play a very quick part of this actual piece, here it is. Yeah, and I guess interestingly, the first time that this happens in the real world is when Will's brother is is driving out of Hawkins. And you don't know whether he's actually fleeing or what he's doing. And it comes up, should I stay or should I go? And it's him driving out of the city limits. <laughs> so, it's used there. And then later on, it becomes the way of Will communicating with the real world. Here's the examples from within the show. Oh, 
And then from within the upside down. If I go, there will be trouble. And if I stay, there will be trouble. So, come on and let me know. Should I stay or should I go? And whenever that's happening, he's always hiding. Mm. And it's like he's... You know, it's that connection to the real world, but even just the literal sense of, should I stay here, you know, or do I need to run away and um, or find a different place to hide or am I safe? And, and God, that's a spooky way of sort of turning, <laughs> what, is, it, yeah. Yeah, t- turning what is like a really, you know, great. Uh, yeah. rock song into sort of just the world's creepiest, you know, yeah. version, especially when it's coming through the radio like yeah. that. Now, Saya, you had some examples of, this, of, of some of these uh, rock pieces that you, you wanted to check out. Yeah, I'd, I was going to say, I think it's really interesting that all of the licensed music on this soundtrack, they're not the most famous song by the artist, except for maybe Africa by Toto, which is on it. But you know, for the other songs, I, I think that normally when, when there's an 80s movie, they'll pick like the biggest hit of that year, you know. And for this song, they, it sounds like they've really carefully picked out songs that aren't necessarily like a focus track of the album. So they pick, you know, like, you know, lesser known songs from Foreigner and New Order and Echo and the Bunnymen and even Joy Division. I th- and I think that makes it even more special. It's like that, like they're seeking out something that's a bit of a secret, even at the time. Do you know what I mean? I just, I just thought that was really lovely. It also, it, it doesn't mean that if you, you know, if you heard really famous songs, so often they have associations either with other films or yeah. just right, their own yeah. baggage because they are so famous. That's right. Um, to hear something, yeah, more, more unusual. Um, I think it ties in with something I want, I want to mention, which was a really cathartic moment in, in the, the series at the end of episode three where they find Will's body. They don't underplay it with score. They use David Bowie's song Heroes. But again, they don't use Bowie's version. They use a cover made by Peter Gabriel, which was completely rearranged for sort of orchestra and strings by John Metcalf. Uh, who's a ranger who did stuff with Coldplay and and lots of other great great bands and it's so unusual it's such an unusual uh, rendition of it that again it's it, it doesn't have all this excess baggage sort of attached to it um, and is really kind of fresh and i mean i think is the moment in the film sorry in the film in the series where I think the fact that they've used the song called Heroes, you can kind of see it written on the boys' faces that, all right, they can either, the series can end now, we can accept Will's dead and, and let's all move on and watch something else. Or they can, they can sort of make a stand of defiance and say, no, we're going to get to the bottom of this and find out what actually has happened. And it really is their, their way of becoming the heroes uh, after we learn that he's dead, you know, even though he's not. <laughs> but I wanted to just play a bit of this, this version because it is, it is really fantastic and really interesting. And check out the, the string writing. It's, it's great. I, I will be king And you Though nothing will drive us away 
I mean, there's not an ounce of synthesizer in that, yeah, which no. really sonically um, is quite, quite not, jar- not jarring, but it's quite different from everything else in there. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I mean, the, the sort of the rhythmic, uh, you know, in the strings, the pulsing. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of almost got that Steve Reich, Philip Glass, they, minimalist. I was reading about the album. They they right. kind of were highly influenced by both Arvo Pett and Steve Reich. Right, right. Um, and you can, yeah, totally hear that. Which, you know, in, in a sense, like, you know, uh, I often think of Steve Reich's music as a response to the kind of the synthesis age or the computer oh, age. there you go. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, you know, that that same sort of pulsing yeah. which you can imagine you're setting up on a, maybe an arpeggiator or something like that. Yep. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, it's also such a sad, um, not sad, it's such a, such a simple word, mm. but it, there is a sense of longing mm. in that particular version. I mean, if you played the Bowie version, the Bowie version really is a celebration and sure. this is far you know, a lot further away from that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like there's there's a sadness of them learning that all that they think will is is dead. Mm. But at the same time, there's a sort of we're gonna we're gonna rise up, gonna push through. We're gonna push through. Yeah, yeah. So everybody, <laughs> I think that brings us to the end. This it was what an epic. Yes, I mean, look, it's a it's a massive show. I mean, this is mm. the first time we've tackled a, a show that that has you know this many hours. I mean, I, I sort of feel like this this whole series could have been a single movie that has just been you know chopped up um, into nominal episodes. But I hope you've been with us all the way to, through this time. And before we say our goodbyes, I'd just like to thank Saya Vogel. Thank you so much, Saya, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That was really fun. We'll have to uh, make sure that we get you in the room uh, when we, or if we ever tackle a Blade Runner score or something uh, like that. Yes, please. Um, and see what we can do there. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll pay you the same, Saya, the same terms. <laughs> I had so much more to say about synthesizers. <laughs> I know you do. Um, and, of course, if you want to... Um, I didn't even mention Vangelis. Yeah, yeah I, I, I don't know how we managed not really yeah. to delve into endless Vangelis all day long. Um, but we got there. We, 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 didn't, we didn't fall. We didn't talk about John Carpenter all that mm, much either. Yeah. Mm. Is this... Is is this the part of the episode where we talk about our regrets? Yeah. Of the uh, <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, um, hopefully uh, at home you enjoyed our analysis of Stranger Things. Of course, if you did enjoy it, go ahead and leave us a rating, press subscribe, tell your friends, um, get the word out there. We seem to have all sorts of people from around the world checking this out now, which is really exciting. So hello to you from wherever you are around the world and for those who are listening in the Upside Down. And uh, <laughs> I like to have a podcast that's available yeah. to everyone. Yeah. So, uh, if you want to sort of get in touch with us online, you can hit us up on Twitter and it's at Art of the Score or Instagram also at Art of the Score. And we're also on Facebook, um, Art of the Score as well. 
and uh, we love hearing from you. We love to answer questions. We love to hear suggestions and uh, more than happy to hear from you and, and, and chat to you on that further about this amazing score because, of course, we have season two. And now that you've got your little primer of all your main themes, having watched uh, season two, I can guarantee you that a lot of these themes do pop up again. Mm-hmm. So you can sort of play at home and while you're watching season two. But thanks again to Sad Vogel. And thank you to Dan Goldie. A pleasure. And thank you also to Nicholas Buck. Mouth breather. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been Andrew Pogson, and this was Art of the Score. <laughs>